I just wanted to feel alive because I just felt so empty and dead inside. And that's where it's like reversed for other people. They're like, oh, I'm doing this to escape or, you know, and I'm like, I was the complete opposite. I just needed to, to feel alive because like I said, I was just so dead for so many months. I was just like on autopilot, not even knowing what I'm doing half the time. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast, featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma, to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. Welcoming to Knocking Doors Down, author of This Is Me Trying, Navigating Through a Lifetime of Trauma, Will Pressure. Thank you very much for joining me, good sir. Thank you for having me. Where are we at today? Uh, today I'm in Houston, Texas. Okay, so you grew up in the Texas area, so we've pretty much stayed there. Uh, yes, sir. yeah, I have only been out of Texas living wise once or once. Um, that was up in Idaho. Um, there's a portion of the book that explains the crazy fiasco that happened there. <laughs> so, well, now uh, I'm cu- now I'm curious why Idaho. I mean, you know, um, I I grew up in the foster system and. Um, one of my adoptive caseworkers, she just put a lot of kids in Idaho to be adopted because it was easier to dump them off up there. And so she took me up there and left me and came back to Texas. Oh, well, <laughs> she, shit. Uh, <laughs> how old were you then? I was 12. 12, man. Yeah. I, and I know your book, you, you know, you touched on obviously within the title, A Lifetime of Trauma. Um, so moving around in the foster care system, which uh, thank you for coming on, being vulnerable about that, because a lot of people don't realize how traumatic that really can turn out for so many to be. Um, and, and you're one of those situations. How old were you, though, when you first ended up adopted? So legally, I just got adopted this year by my parents, my foster parents who I met. They were my last foster home I ever went to. Okay. I've been with them since I was 12 years old. And so we've never, there was never no need to legally be adopted by them because after six months of being played with them, they were mom and dad. Like they're my family. I wasn't going anywhere. Sure. But um, this year with my book coming out, me graduating college and everything, I wanted their last name with all my accolades versus my biological father's last name. So that's why we did the whole adoption so I can change my name and everything like that. But when I first went into foster care, I was seven years old, but I had been in CPS custody since I was three. Oh. So at two to three, we started bouncing around from family to family. And then seven is when the state came over and took over. And I was in foster care from seven up until 18. Now, when you say we, are, are you talking siblings? Oh, yeah. I had one other sibling with me. Um, we were together in that first home for about two years. And then we got separated and she eventually went back to our biological family. 
and mm-hmm. I stayed in the system. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, what does she end up with? Like grandparents, aunts, uncles, something along those lines? Uh, yeah, yeah. Something along those lines. She had a lot of our biological family take her in. I was uh, more of a troublemaker in, <laughs> in my younger days. So no one, technically no one really wanted me. So I got the luck in the job and had to stay in the system. So. Well, <laughs> you can't share that now. I got to know what were you doing? Were you just one of those kids that was hard to keep your attention, just rebellious? All of the above. There was so much going on with the abuse that was happening and the trauma. And I was just, I, at seven years old, you don't know how to really process everything that's going on. So I was just sure. acting out like it was, it was bad. And I look on it now, I'm like, man, I didn't have to do all that, but <laughs> Well, I, but that's that. That's kind of the good thing when I when I talk with people that maybe their kid is struggling with some substance abuse. You know, there tends to be usually for all of us. You know, hey, hand up an underlying trauma. Um, but it's kind of like uh, it's better that they're kind of you screw up as a kid than when you become an adult. The, the consequences tend to be a little bit more extreme once we hit that eighteen mark. Oh, yeah. My dad is always reminding me that because we used to have this conversation when I was younger. He's like, you know, one of these days you're going to call me and be like, Dad, you were right. And I was like, nah, I will never do that. I had to do that the other day. I had to bite my tongue and be like, you know what? You were right. Uh, you felt right about that. Well, that's so. fascinating to me that that um, your family uh, adopted you. How how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I'm 29 now. So <laughs> it was, uh, I know, like, and when people say like, you got to adopt at 29, I was like, you know what? We're just like, screw it. Let's go do it. So no, I love it. I'm the opposite. I think that's, that's one of the coolest things I've heard in a long time. You know, that's a, that's that power <laughs> of love, right? Yeah. I've been for 17 years in September. So like I say, it was never, we never needed anything concrete, but as my parents are starting to get older. Um, so like if anyone ever tried to contest like a will or something like that, it would just make things flow easier if I was just legally their son. And so that's how kind of why we started going towards it. Yeah. So, but let's jump back to, uh, you're born Temple, Texas. Uh, Am I remembering yes, that? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like definitely a fractured family, um, that, that was there. So was it mom was gone? Dad was gone. Both. What, you, uh, <coughs> uh, both of a- them. Apparently, my biological father, he left when I was about three months old. Um, my biological mom, she was in and out of prison, always off on drugs. Mm. My oldest brother, he was seven years older than me. Um, he was taking care of us at the time. Um, it was me, him, and two other siblings. And like I say, he was 11, taking care of a eight, seven, and like a four-year-old. So he, wow. was, he pretty much raises our first three to four years of life. Like he, he did everything. And so it was just, yeah, it was just tough. I couldn't imagine. And that, that, that role of parenting should never be thrusted upon a child ever. Oh yeah. we we finally end up in the foster care system. I'm going to assume, you know, when I'm hearing it, mom in and out of prison drugs, um, that there was just not really any stable parental figure whatsoever at any point whatsoever not until i got into the foster system so like i said it was i was seven it was about four like four six days from my eighth birthday um so yeah so that's when we kind of we went into our first foster home and then the second foster home when my sister got in the same house together the home together that home it was good um there was 
it was there was no physical abuse in this home. It was more emotional abuse and stuff of that nature. Because, like I say, in foster care, you have to take the good with the bad. So I wasn't getting physically abused, but I was getting more emotionally abused. And so, but I, you know, just bit my lip and took it because at the end of the day, I had three hot meals and clean clothes and a bed to sleep in. So it's wow. it's just one of those things. Was that the, the majority of, of where if you pinpoint kind of looking back on your life, putting the book together where you would say the trauma was because, and I've said this too, I, I didn't incur uh, physical abuse with my parents, but unfortunately with a relationship later on when my addiction was going and the mental emotional abuse to me was worse than anything physical. And see, I argue that a lot too. And people I mean, everyone has their own opinion, but I argue sure. that, yeah, the emotional neglect and the emotional abuse and mental abuse is way worse than physical because as a child, you want to connect with someone like, you know, we, we earn the, you're going to connect with someone. And so I never, ever received that until I was about 13 when I got with my family now, 12, 13 now. And so I think that that definitely played a huge part in me growing up, especially with all the abuse. Um, dealing with, I later found out last year I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Oh, wow. And so a major thing of that, a component of that is abandonment issues. And so that was my main thing growing up in the system. I had all these people that just kept abandonment leaving me. So I was never able to get that connection that I needed. Sure. Uh, how now in adulthood, uh, what kind of steps have you taken when unraveling your trauma and and becoming more healthy. The one thing I did the most while writing this book, because I didn't realize how traumatic my life was. Cause like, you know, as you go through trauma, like your brain kind of tends to shield you from most of it. And so when I was writing this book, I had to dig deep and relive some of like the deepest, darkest trauma that I didn't even remember that I had. Um, and so that was very hard. And so I just had to stop writing for maybe months at a time. Mm. and then like just i've been in therapy for the last year so work with my therapist that way i'm not re-triggered that way i don't re i don't want to say relapse i don't because i don't really say it was addiction that i had but i was drinking heavily trying to just just feel something else other than the pain yeah and so i just had to really really work on my mental health that was my first and foremost priority it's interesting you bring that up because I've told people this, you know, when talking about, well, why were you drinking so much? What were you wanting <clears> to numb out? Is like, no, I'm sorry. I was, I was fucking numb as is. I wanted to actually like be able to feel something and enjoy, like yes. enjoy and engage. And I, I felt as though, and I still, I struggle at times. I'm just a socially awkward dude. <laughs> well, it's just how it is. Yeah. Sometimes I just, I just am. But I, I wanted to actually feel something because I felt I had shut down to so many different aspects of my life just to keep an even kill that I didn't know what joy was. I didn't know, you know, I just didn't know how to navigate it. And see, I have a huge portion of my book that says that, too. It's like I just wanted to feel alive because I just felt so empty and dead inside. And that's where it's like reverse for other people. They're like, oh, I'm doing this to escape or, you know. And I'm like, I was the complete opposite. I just needed to, to feel alive because, like I said, I was just so dead for so many months. I was just like on autopilot. 
not even knowing what I'm doing half the time. Did you find in, in going back through, cause I've debated this too, at least, I don't know that I'll write a book, but just kind of retrace, understand myself a little bit. I had just huge gaps of time that I just don't remember a damn thing. Uh, I didn't really have that. I've, Unfortunately, I've been blessed with a good memory, and I say unfortunately because it gets it, it gets to where I just can't forget things no matter how hard I try. So mm-hmm. the gaps I never really had, unless of course I was blacked out drunk. Mm-hmm. But other than that, um, no, I remember pretty much everything as if it just happened five minutes ago. Wow, you are you are blessed but cursed at the same time. Yeah, yeah, so cursed. So yeah, so especially when it came to writing this, because I remember every little detail or what was unique um i had my cps case file so when you're in a cps the the system they document every little thing that you do and so it came on this disc and there was about i think 2700 pages of every little thing i've ever done in my whole entire life and like any emails that my mom sent to the cps caseworkers it was on there so that actually helped me write the book too because i skimmed through all those pages and i was able to put everything in together, come out to order. So some things I forgot that I did, sure. like getting in fights and stuff like that. But no, it was in there. So now when uh, Mr. X reaches out and goes, hey, remember, I, I'm proud of you for writing the book, but remember when you beat me up, you're like, oh, page 42, I did. Damn, man, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I did. And I sent that to a few of my friends. Cause I'm like, look, they have our whole fight in here. Like when we have like the ISS disciplinary slip, and all <laughs> that, like everything was in there. So that was, that was pretty cool. So I got to like relive everything. Oh, good. in good old in school suspension, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I was always in ISS every single day. So how, you mentioned that you, you wouldn't necessarily classify yourself as an alcoholic, but you're definitely drinking to, as <clears throat> I can relate, feel was, are you completely abstinent of al- alcohol now? And has that been a part of your journey too? No, um, I still drink. Like if I go out and celebrate, like on the weekends with friends, I'll drink. But now it's, I'm not drinking excessively. I'm not drinking to just black out and just be absolutely just like done with life. Now I can drink and have fun and not be like the belligerent drunk crying out in the corner somewhere. <laughs> so for me, it was never an addiction. So I, I, people always get onto me for that, but I've been studying substance abuse for like the last four years. And so I believe there is a difference between substance abuse and addiction. Addiction is mm. when you cannot live without, when your body needs it, abuse is more when you need it. And so yeah. I was needing it versus like me waking up and like getting tremors and having a drink. So I could go months without drinking, you know, days on end without drinking. It was just when I would see something or hear something, I would get triggered and I'm like, oh, let me just drink to numb it out. Sure. And I'll be better. Uh, thank you for sharing. Yeah, I was curious. And, and you know, for me, there's been many a people. We've had people that uh, that I've talked with that um, maybe this substance, maybe it was heroin, but they can drink like a normal person. It's just such an mm-hmm. interesting thing about our not only our brains, but our genetic makeups of how we can work. <laughs> and well, yeah. one substance, this one substance, you know, not so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely I definitely agree with that because I have never done any. Well, I've only smoked weed once my whole entire life. The only other substance I've ever done is alcohol. So like, I don't really have like any drug stories, so I can't really relate on because I know I have addictive personality. So I'm all like, it's going to take one, one, one hit. And then I am like, <laughs> my whole life is over and I've done way too much to let it get to that. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and clearly there was a family lineage of it, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Both my biological parents, substance abuse. And so I'm just like, man, I, I know it's already predisposition in, in my in my head. So I'm like, I'm not even going to give it any sort of fuel. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. Did you ever get an opportunity to have any reconciliation with, with your birth parents? Or is that something that not of interest or just wasn't ever presented to happen? So my biological father, he still, he stays with my sister. He just got out of prison. Him, I just don't really have any interest in meeting just because, I mean, there's just nothing that he can do for me. Sure. He hasn't been in my life and I'm 29 now and I have a dad. Um, my biological mom, that is a very, very challenging, rocky situation. I will give you the gist of it. I tried to reconcile with her about two to three years ago. Flashback to my younger days, I was sexually abused by someone in her family circle. Mm. And she got the bright idea a couple of years ago to give him my phone number so he could call me. And that kind of ended our relationship right then and there. And that was kind of transpired into my downward spiral because for some reason she thought it was cool to give him my phone number. He thought it was cool to call me. And so, yeah, so not anymore. Not after that. I tried. I did all I could do, but. Well, I understand that. Well, I shit, man. I mean, <laughs> I know when I tell people that, like, yeah, it's it. They're like, how? Like, yeah, I don't know what to say. Yeah, it's bad enough. You know, I, I went through uh, molestation as a child myself, and I just couldn't imagine if my parents were like, oh, just get, just go ahead and give them a call and. And, and yeah, go ahead and talk it out. Like it's, it's not water under the bridge. It's yeah. like, and that's, that's how I felt about it. I'm like, there's nothing I can say. If you're looking for forgiveness, I don't think that's for me to give to you. I think you have to find that on your own. And so, yeah, when, when she did that, that was kind of the last straw at us ever reconciling on anything because, you know, I was trying to overlook the whole, the drug abuse growing up. Cause like I said, she was 20, 28. Yes. Yeah, 28 with four kids. Uh, one was like 15, you know, like she and she was on she had her whole substance abuse problem. So, you know, right. she was going through it. And so right. I was trying to overlook that, you know, I was trying to reconcile, you know, um, and it was nice getting to know her because you know I was learning more about me, like how she named me after her favorite basketball players, stuff, which I never knew where my name came from. And I was just learning why I like to do so many things that she did. And then this happened. And it's just like one of those things. It was like a slap in the face because it's like not only did I lose you. So I have to deal with that trauma all over again, losing you. And then now I have to deal with the trauma of hearing his voice again and reliving all that trauma that I went through 20 something years ago. And so it was just, it was a lot. And it happened about two years ago. And I just, I just let go. And then just whatever happened to me, happened to me. So I can't, I can't say I blame you. Um, 
how did you, and I guess I'm selfishly a- a- asking this no, question because no. <clears throat> I still kind of work through it as well. Being a man, being molested by a man, what kind of work did you did you do on that? I, I got to I got to a good understanding maybe five years ago. Like I was a child, I was a victim. It's okay to say as a victim, it wasn't my fault. But what kind of personal work have you done in that area? And see, that was my the earlier years in my life, maybe up until I want honestly, probably about 22, 23, I couldn't talk about it without crying or without breaking down, especially when I was a child. I remember my parents would ask me about it or like my therapist, because I was in therapy from the time I was three until I was 17. Um, that's another story that we're not going to get into that one too. <laughs> okay. Um, and so oh, we had the family therapist. And so he helped me work through a lot of it, but I still wasn't able to talk about it. because I was, I was just ashamed. I felt like it was my fault. And especially growing up in a black community, um, I talk about this a lot. A lot of molestation happens. It's very, 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 like it happens common. It happens all the time. And it's just taboo and swept under the rug. Because, you know, back in the old days, it's like you don't really talk about what goes on inside your house. Yeah. And so I was just always so ashamed. And when I finally spoke out about it, my whole volatile family pretty much turned against me. And everyone kept telling me because you should have kept your mouth shut. That's why I stayed in the system so long. And everyone else took my sister back because she never spoke up and never said anything. I don't think she she only opened her mouth one time throughout the whole ordeal. And I was always very vocal about it because I just never I understood even from an early age. I knew that it was not right. And so it took me years to finally get to the point where I had to tell myself, it is not your fault. You did nothing wrong. And so, like I say, I was about 20 to 22, about 23. I remember I was driving and I heard this song by Demi Lovato called Warrior. And it just struck with me. And I was like, okay, you know, it's, it's not your fault. Like you did nothing wrong. And so it, it took me some time. That's what I tell everyone. Like everyone has their own time frame when it comes to trauma. There's no statute of limitations. It's just going to take time to try to keep working through it. And a lot of the uh, um, people more educated than more me educated. And, and even the digging in I've done have found that, you know, our brain comes to maturation around 26. And sometimes that's where some of this stuff can tar- start to take a stronghold in our psyche and how we see ourselves in the world, process information and relate to others, connect with others. And, you know, I'm just glad that you dealt with it because uh, because we can. And I applaud you for speaking up because we don't uh, there, there's no comeback to these people if we just continue to sit silently. And I like what you said, because that's what I that's one of the topics in my therapist talk about now. She's like, you know, sometimes things happen later on in life. That way we can process them because our brain is more mature. At 12 and 13, I couldn't process anything versus, I mean, I was going through puberty. I was going through the process system. I had so many things going on. My brain could not isolate one problem and process it. And so now that I'm a little bit older, like I say, I have more knowledge of the world and everything. And so it, it was easy to process this time around versus the first time. And so that's why I only spiraled out for maybe... I say only a year, but in terms of trauma, it felt like it was 10 years. But so it was, yeah, it wasn't that long and I didn't completely ruin my life. Yeah. So that was, that was the good thing. I still had jobs. I was still working. I was just a very functionally depressed, severely depressed person. 
Well, I'm glad you're on the other side and sharing your story to, uh, to help others. Uh, I have to ask as a guy that was big basketball, uh, player and fan, who <laughs> then did your mom name you after? Uh, so my full name is Wils Darian Dominique Shaquille. Oh, so, <laughs> so Shaquille O'Neal is one of them and Dominique Lowe is the other one. Hey, you gotta like D- Dominique, man. That dude was ahead of his time. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was one of her favorite players, him and Shaq. So right on. So yeah, that, that was pretty cool. I love it. It was uh, your first full first name, like a family name that I don't know. She says, um, I was named after my biological father, which I don't want to give his name away on the air, but, um, no. So his name and my name are nowhere near each other. So I have no idea, but I like, <laughs> like at first I used to hate it, but now I'm like, it, it's pretty cool. Like, cause no one else has that name. So I, I dig it. Yeah. Uh, maybe she did a word scramble, just put the letters out there and formed it together and went, Will's Darian. Perfect. I think so. I think so. Maybe, hopefully, I don't know. I guess I can never ask anymore, but <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> one day. I think it's um, a powerful name though. I dig it. Thank you. Uh, so we're bouncing through foster care system how many different households do you recollect going through uh, about five in the um about uh, six about five to six in the four year span okay so i was at my first one then i was at the second for about four years and then that's when i started bouncing through um different homes and through the adoption system and everything <laughs> now, when you ended up with your folks now, um, and did I piece it together correctly? This is when you went from Texas to Idaho? Yeah, I went from Texas to Idaho, and then they came and got me because they're like, okay, so I was just going to go see the placement um, and see if I like the family, whatnot, because I did not want to be adopted. I did not want to leave Texas. Um, so I went up there. I was like, yeah, I like it. And they're like, okay, sign this paper. Send it. You like it here? And I was like, okay. I signed it. And they're like, okay, well, you're adopted. I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah. Like you just signed to be adopted. So she was like, all right, well, have fun. I'm going back to Texas. And she just left me there for two weeks and nobody knew where I was at. Not a single, she was the only person. And my foster parents at the time was she blocked all their numbers. And so, yeah. So literally for two weeks, I was stuck in Idaho and no one knew where I was at. It wasn't until my therapist that I've been seeing since I was three years old. He got back from vacation. He called me. And he's like, what are you doing? I was like, adopted. And he's like, no, that's not going to work. So they got on the phone. They got my judge, the attorney that I had. Um, They're like, you go up there the next day. Like, actually, they're like that day, get on the airplane to Idaho. If not, we're going to hold you in contempt or kidnapping or something like that. And so she came and got me. And then I am with my parents now. Wow. That lady was just like, (laughs) I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. She really was. And like, to this day, like, I just. I've only seen her one other time. And I'm like, you know, if I'm older and I see you, I don't think it's going to go the way you want it to go. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, she just literally just dumped me up there. And like I say, for two weeks, no one knew where I was at. Wow. Unreal. So that's another thing about the foster system. Like it's so easy to lose children, especially like that. But hopefully people are, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, you know, so to speak. Hopefully now. Yeah. Well, we might have to get your story out there a little more. So maybe people pay some (laughs) more attention, right? Yeah. So tell me about your family now. I mean, uh, what was your take when they came into your life? Were you, was it a good fit right away or did it take a little bit while? Cause I'm, I'm, this is the story that my head has built up is you come into this family and it's like, they're going to do it a little different. They're going to show 
love, but discipline as well and, and structure. And it's like, this is unfamiliar. I don't know what this is. That's exactly how it happened. Um, the first day they came and picked me up, I still remember what my mom was wearing and everything. And I just sat in the back of the car like, all right, here we are again. It's a new foster home. I know the rules. Y'all are going to put on like, oh, this is the perfect, happy home the first two days. And then, you know, then go into being like the shittiest place I've ever been in. But it was the complete opposite. It was, I always tell this story because it's funny. It was the first time in my life I had my own room. I had a TV in my room and I had cable in my room for the very first time in my life. And I tell people that because I only had that cable in my room for about two weeks before my parents took it up because <laughs> I just watched TV all night long and they would come wake me up and I would be so tired because I stayed up watching TV. But um, their approach was to let me be a kid and just treat me like I was a normal kid. And I think that kind of helped me bond with them so well because they never treated me like a foster kid. They had two other follow-ups with children, my brother and my sister. Mm. And they treated me like I was part of the family from day one. And so I think the the nurture I got from them is kind of what helped mold into the relationship that we have now. Your brother and sister now, they were pretty like excited to have you on there. They were on board. There was never those moments of, well, he's not really our brother or any of that. No, they, I don't think, I don't think they've ever even said that if they thought it, they never told me, but I don't even think they ever thought it. Like I say, within six months, it was pretty clear that, that that's my brother and my sister. Like if you would hear us talk without seeing us, because my family's white. And so if you would hear us talk, without seeing our faces, seeing our color, you would be like, okay, yeah, y'all just still lose your whole entire life. We <laughs> just bonded so well. And that was another major issue for me too, because they were white and I, I've been with white families before, but I preferred <clears throat> black families. It's just because growing up the way I did, my parents, my biological parents and my biological family wasn't really fond of white people. You know, we grew up in a community where it was majority black. And so it was culture shocks going into the foster system, especially being raised by white, by white families. And even with my mom now, like she just didn't know how to take care of a black foster kid. And so it was a learning curve for both of us. It's interesting you bring that up, that your biological family, because I don't know if you have hard facts or we can make an assumption. They probably had traumas there that carried back too. Uh, <clears throat> and generational trauma is so interesting. And I think... I hope more people have started to catch on to that, especially after the occurrences that have happened in our country over the last two and a half, three years, especially because it gives so much relevance to the history that people like to ignore. And so that's one of the last few chapters that I touch on in my book is generational trauma, because um, like I said, I will never forgive my biological mom and her family member for what they did to me. Mm -hmm. But I'm not bitter. I've moved on because like I said, I just don't know their situation. The same thing. They might've been molested as a child sure. and that generational trauma might've kept keep on going because, you know, they might've still talked to their abusers and because people do it all the time. And cause I think it's normal. I remember I had this friend, he posted on the social media. He's all like, um, I was abused as a child and my abuser still goes to the family function. I still talk to him all the time. And I'm just like, but a lot of people do that because I think it's normal. And I'm like, that is not normal. But then you go, it's a generational trauma because you tell your parents, especially in the black community, like, oh, brush off, like, oh, that happened to me as a child. And so, you know, like, especially in black community, they don't believe in getting self-help. They don't believe in therapy. Most communities don't, honestly, if 
because I grew up black. I grew up with a Latino family. I grew up with a white family. And I can tell you, out of all three of those families, the only family that do anything about therapy and mental health is white people. Mm. And so I know that's another huge portion of generational trauma, especially in the African-American or black American community. And so I really, really wanted to touch on that as to why I'm not bitter. I'm not mad at them anymore because I get it. Like, like I put in there, he, I put in there, monsters aren't born, they're created. And someone created him into the monster, into my story. So I can't, I mean, I can be mad at him, but I can't be completely mad at him because I know it's something that it was a learned behavior from him. It's not something he just thought about overnight. Yeah. And so, and everyone I know that's a hard, it was, that was a very hard pill for me to swallow. That took a lot of, a lot of therapy, a lot of working through to come to that conclusion to write that chapter because I was so angry. But then I was all like, I you can't be angry at something that someone else did to someone. Yeah. I can be angry at his actions, but I can't, I mean, like I said, I can't be completely angry at him because like I say, he was young too. He didn't know better. So yeah. And who knows, he could have had it tenfold worse than me. And so that, that was another thing I had to think about. That's a huge challenge about compassion, don't you think? Because it, oh, yeah. it, 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 vengeance isn't a part of compassion. And, and I know, and I'm you as well and everyone, we much more prefer to be treated with compassion than we would with vengeance. But it's, it's hard to let go when someone's inflicting pain. Is. Like I say, that was... One of the hardest things I think I might have done my whole entire life is letting go of that pain that I held on for so long because I said I was over it. But then it wasn't until I was writing this book that I actually had to deal with that pain and relive it and go through it and come out on the other end and be like, okay, yes, I'm mad. I'm hurt that it happened. But at the end of the day, I don't know his reasoning behind it. It's not everything is so black and white as people like to think. Like the gray area is like it's it's there. And sometimes we don't want to look at it, but sometimes you have to go through it. Yeah. And so that was that really helped me understand everything. So like I say, I can't I will never say I forgive you because I don't think forgiveness is for me, but I'm not bitter. I don't hold no resentment. I'm just moving on with my life. And that was the end of that. Yeah, I I think you nail it. Is that that forgiveness is is to the self that you know? I know for me it was I was a child, I wasn't protected. This person was viewed as someone that was safe. I don't hold any anger or whatever, and it just I, the forgiveness is for me. I'm not going to sit and go like, oh, I deserve this or whatever. It's like no, but it happened, and I don't have to let it define me to con- to continue to be a hurt person that potentially hurts other people and see i think that's that's where a lot of people get get stuck in. they get stuck and being a victim for so long and that's another thing i touched on because you know for so long we're victims of our trauma and it's like if we keep let it control us then we're never going to learn we're never going to grow from it so you say okay yes this happened to me but now look at me i'm thriving i'm surviving you just never get out of that mindset. Oh, I can't forgive them what they did to me. Oh, what they did to me was wrong. And it's like, when I tell people all the time, it's like, we're not saying that what they did to you wasn't wrong. We're just saying there's nothing you can do about the situation. The only thing that you can do is your reaction to the situation. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I tell when I have my, because I work at uh, juvenile detention centers and stuff like that. And I deal with a lot of you know troubled youth. And that's always their go-to is that what I just said. I'm like, okay, 
you can't control everything in the world. The only thing that we have absolute control of every single time is our reaction to those events. And so that's what I wanted to make sure that my reaction to that event wasn't negative like it had been before. Do you do counseling directly with uh, juveniles in detention or what is it that you do you do now for work? Um, so that's what I'm trying to get back into. So I worked at a juvenile detention center for about a year. I was like the, a coach counselor, like a JSO, like a correctional officer. Um, we had group therapy sessions or counseling sessions daily and stuff like that. Um, I worked in various residential treatment centers for troubled foster kids and stuff like that who with behavioral problems. I myself almost had to go to one. So, you know, I understand um, like some of these kids behavioral problems just aren't that they're bad. It's just that they just don't have anyone to listen to them. Right. And sometimes that's that's what I needed. And I think that's what helped my my parents now is they sat down and they listened to me. They listened to the text in between the lines when I said something. Um, they're like, OK, my mom. Oh, bless her heart. She's such a sweet lady. And she got the she I put her through hell growing up. <laughs> oh, I put this woman through hell growing up. But she knew at the end of the day, I wasn't mad at her no matter what. No matter how many ways I cussed her up and down, like I just I was the worst person to her. But, you know, we came on the other end and she tells me now, she's like, you know, I know you were not mad at me. You were just mad at the world and you were just taking it out on me because I cared the most about you. And so that's what I try to tell these people and the kids. It's like, okay, yeah, you're mad, but you have to figure out who you're really mad at. What point did you decide? I, you know, I want to write a book. And, And what was the reasoning behind it? Uh, I got COVID, so I was stuck at home for two weeks, <laughs> and I was talking to my therapist, like, what am I going to do for two weeks? She's like, write a book. So I was like, okay, all right. I've always wanted to be a writer. Like, ever since I was in third grade, I want to be a writer. When a teacher asked us what we want to be when we get older, I said, an author. Every other kid was like, oh, I'm going to be a secret agent, policeman, you know, Superman. I'm like, I want to be an author. And so it's always been something that I enjoyed. Like say, I had to teach myself pretty much how to read and write because when I went into the foster system, I was grades behind all the other kids just because I didn't go to school. I was always suspended. Um, and so I spent a lot of my time alone, like a loner, but hey, reading my books, writing. I used to write poems a lot. And so I just sat down to write. I wrote the very first section in a week and it was about 60 pages. And then after that, it just, everything just flowed. It took me about, five and a half months to actually write the book and then it took another three to edit and then get the illustrations and all that stuff done so within about nine months it was completely finished and published but yeah it was right. once once i started writing it just flowed out like a waterfall like it was it was cool and it was really 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 therapeutic that's pretty cool to think about that if you ever have a conversation with the with the younger you at that age you go see we're a writer Right. Yeah. So look, look, we made it. And that's what I, that's what I like to, when I read the book, it's hard because I go back to when I was four or five reliving that trauma. And it's like, I just want to go and hug my younger self. I'm like, Hey, look, we're going to be okay. Like, look, 20 some years from now, we're going to be a published author. Life's going to be great. We're going to be giving back to other foster children like you to kind of help them see their light and the end of the tunnel. And it, it's been a very fun and surreal experience. I love it. Well, we'll uh, tell people how they can find you on uh, social media and uh, get the book. So all of my social medias, everything is my first name, Wills Darian. Um, Facebook, it's Wills Darian Pressure. I'm pretty sure Instagram and Twitter are both Wills Darian, just my first name. 
Um, the book is on Amazon. There should be a link on all my pages and all my accounts to, to find it. Um, I'm working on getting the ebook version out within the end of this week. And I'm also working on the audio book as well. Right on. Uh, who's going to read the audio book? Are you going to do it? I've been thinking about doing it myself. I'm not too sure yet, but I think I might do it myself. I think you should. I, I personally love autobiographies where people you know share what they've been through. And I think it's great when the author's on there. Okay, then yeah, I just have to get all the equipment and everything together. But yeah, I think within um, probably maybe starting the fall, because right now I'm trying to finish up and graduate in August and then get into my master's program. So right now my time's a little tight, but hopefully by the end of the year, I'll have it done and Heck yeah. it be published. What are we going for for the master's degree? Uh, master's in social work. All right. Well, well, this is the time of the uh, podcast where we jump into some fun, random questions. Are you ready? Okay. All I'm right. Ready. Uh, you're stranded on a deserted Island. You have one movie and one music album with you. What are they? Oh, the movie is Norbit. <laughs> the movie is definitely Norbit. And How the are album, you doing? Yes. Yes. Definitely Norbit all the way. Or Scary Movie 2, one of those two. It's hard <laughs> to pick. And the album would definitely be Pink's Misunderstood, her 2000, I think one or two album. That was an awesome tour. I saw her by herself on that tour, and I saw her with Lenny Kravitz. Talk about a concert, man. That oh, was man. a show. <clears throat> I'm jealous. That is, that is my go-to album. Anytime anything goes wrong in my life, I put that album on and play it from start to finish. That is, that is my my absolute favorite artist, my absolute favorite album. So yeah, I take that album with me everywhere. Even at school, I had it in my backpack. Like I just always had it with me. So I would definitely have to take that with me. Right on. I dig it. Uh, do you have any pet, uh, pet peeves stuff that just is annoying as hell? There's, there's a list <laughs> depending on who you ask. No. Um, <laughs> my biggest, biggest, biggest pet peeve would be people walking slow. I don't know why, but that just irks me. Like, that's like, I got long legs, so I'm 6'2", so I think that might be it. Uh, hey, I'm with you. I'm sick, about 6'2". I don't know. It depends on what convenience store I'm walking out of. But right, yeah. I was walking with my kids and, and my daughter, she would just kind of not only walk slow, but she would do the thing that I guess I probably did as a kid, too, where they just drift into you. Yes, <laughs> like into that, yeah, that's one of mine. Yeah, so you can't, if you cannot walk in a straight line and you walk slow. Yeah. I lose it. I lose. It. I have a friend who's like equilibrium dog, so he cannot just walk in a straight line. Like he just gradually. I'm just like, oh, just walk behind me. I walk behind. I follow the leader on this one. Yeah. Uh, if you could have uh, dinner with any one person, living or not, who would that be? Pink. Yeah. I kind of threw a softball for you there, right? <laughs> yeah. No, definitely pink. Uh, people <laughs> that I know that have met her uh, have said she's just an awesome person. Oh yeah. Like I can only imagine. Like man. She has been the most unapologetic person I've known in the business and just has been the same. Yeah. And so, yeah, she's definitely, if I ever met her, that, that would be like one of the highlights of my life. If they were to make a movie about your book, who would you want to play you? Denzel Washington. No. <laughs> hey, why not? I mean, right? No, no. Um, Denzel could been, play me. Denzel could right? pull it yeah, off. He like, could play Denzel anything. Denzel could pull anybody. I haven't thought about that, but I've been thinking about that. You know, like if it does go, because there's a good, there's a good love story in there that I could see being some potentially like, like a play or something, movie or something. So with that, I just don't know. Well, you mentioned a, a good love story in there. Um, so has it been working through the trauma? I, I know for me, I became a little bit 
um not socially anorexic i kind of struggle with that still at times but but accepting of love was hard for me and now finally in a good place and a good solid relationship was that a challenge for you to the the dating definitely yeah even now even the current situation i'm in now i struggle with my um bpd my borderline personality disorder because it's the first thing is abandonment issues. And so my my tendency is I won't push you away. I'm going to cut everything off before you can leave me and hurt me. And that has been the the foremost thinking in my whole entire life, even with my, my family now. That's why I didn't get along with my mom so well because I was like, okay, every other woman in my life has told me that they love me. They're never going to leave me. And then they did. And so that's always been my biggest issue in relationships is that thinking the abandonment issues. So I'm working on it. Yeah, it's, it's, there. you'll get there. Lifetime it's, it's of it. Yeah. it is. It is. Uh, what would you say that you would want people who don't know anything about borderline uh, to understand? Maybe the some misconceptions. Don't watch the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trials. We're not all the same. <laughs> We're not all the same. But what the sad thing is, like I was sitting there watching that trial because they say that she has it too. And I was just sitting there thinking, I was like, you know, she does not sound that crazy to me, except for shitting in the bed. That's, yeah. that's something I won't do. But everything else she did, I was like, you know, I probably would have done the same thing. But um, living, helping people live with it, just validate their feelings. That's all That's all it is. It's just validation. We just need our feelings validated. Make sure that we're not crazy. We're already emotionally unstable. And you just add fuel to the fire if you don't validate the feelings. Right. So <laughs> recognizing and acknowledging you're seen, you're heard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, last one here. If uh, if you had any superpower, <clears throat> what would it be? To read people's minds. Really? Yeah. Will, that scares the shit out of me. Why that? Because I just want to know what people are thinking at all, like all day long. Just because I love psychology and I just love being inside people's head and mind and see how they think and stuff like sure. that. So if I could read your mind, like that would be... I could do that all day long. That'd be like pure entertainment. See why people think the way they think or what they're thinking about. Because I don't know. I like, I like people watching. I'm just sitting there like, bro, what are you thinking about? Like what bizarre thing are you thinking about while you're out walking in public that no one is even thinking about, you know, like everyone's like, Oh, he's probably thinking about what he has to cook at home. But no, you could be thinking about the most bizarre situation, just walking down the street and no one will ever think twice about it. I'm like, man, yeah. I wish I could read people's minds. Yeah, I always found anthropology really interesting. Just oh, yeah. people's beha- <laughs> patterns and behaviors and everything else. Uh, all right, well, the the floor is yours. If there's any words of encouragement that from your life experience that you would like to uh, lend to the listener, words of encouragement: go to therapy, seek help, go to therapy. Like it, it's especially now after COVID it's more rampant and people are starting to go to therapy more because like I say, they had all these new wave of depression people I'm like, you know, nice. Welcome to the community. You know, welcome <laughs> to the family. Some of us are seeing the curtains, you know, I've had it for 20 something years, but you know, I'm glad that you're here. Um, if you need any help, just, just go to therapy um, and seek help. Like if you are struggling with anything, you can't do it on your own. And that's something that I've realized especially with these last two years we can't do anything in this world on our own. So don't try. Don't even, don't even set yourself up for failure. Just go get help. Uh, Will's book is, uh, this is me trying navigating through a lifetime of trauma. Uh, Will pressure, man, this has been a, a, a pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. Here at Knocking Doors Down, we share the stories of people who overcome adversity. You know that already, but what you may not know is that our partners at the Carlos Vieira Foundation aim to help people who struggle with their own adversities as well. The Carlos Vieira Foundation helps those in need through their Race for Autism, Race to Be Drug-Free, and Race to End the Stigma campaigns. You can also choose the Carlos Vieira Foundation as your charitable organization on Amazon Smile to contribute as well. To learn more and support these causes, check out all the info at carlosvierafoundation.org. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the Knocking Doors Down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.